0: Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School Podcast for the week of April 15th, 2021. That used to be Tax Day, but this day it is not. This year it is not because of the pandemic. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. We're gonna be talking about emancipation leaving Georgia. We're gonna be talking about Bong joon Ho's comments on anti-Asian Asian racism in America. We're gonna be talking in tech news about a brand new drone from DJI that is ridiculous. And we've got all that and an Ask No Film School about getting your start this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So, our first story this week is Will Smith and Antoine Fuqua have confirmed that their upcoming film, Emancipation, is not going to film in Georgia because of the recent election law. It is pretty great that uh, we can say emancipation leaves Georgia. Like it is a nice little buzzy headline that I feel like there's probably more jokes that people can make, <laughs> make about it. Um, but yeah, basically, um, you know, we've seen this before a state decides to pursue some laws like the, uh, bathroom laws a couple years ago in which, you know, you were ordered to use the bathroom of your birth gender. People would pass those laws businesses would be like, all right, well, if you're going to pass these ridiculous laws, we're just not going to do business in your state because we don't feel like it, which they have every right to do as a business. And then there's a a lot of discussion about whether or not it is a good thing. So this is the the highest profile official leaving of a film from Georgia. If you haven't been paying attention, Georgia's film industry has been on fire for the last 10 or 15 years. I know people who've left New York for Georgia. It's still not the place you want to go if you're an actor if you're an actor, you still want to go to New York or LA, mostly LA, because that's where a lot of the casting happens. Like I certainly know actors who've moved to New Orleans or Georgia, but you know, you're, you're not aiming at the top of the call sheet. Then you're like, okay, I'm going to be in some of the smaller parts that they cast locally. But if you're aiming for the big parts, you still go to New York, LA, but a lot of crew have moved to Georgia and Louisiana. And I know post people who've moved to Louis Georgia because they had a generous tax incentive. Tyler Perry built an Entire studio ecosystem on an old Air Force base. Um, that was one of the first productions shooting again during COVID. Like, there's a lot of infrastructure in Georgia. I but
1: wonder what he, I haven't heard anything about him and his feelings about all of this. That's I
0: actually haven't seen the Tyler Perry comments on this yet.
1: I'd be curious. You bring up a lot of really good points about this. This is another instance of major industries reacting to what's happening in Georgia. And I want to highlight for those of us who are only really following the film world that the Major League Baseball All-Star Game pulled out of Atlanta, which is a very big deal and a very different industry than filmmaking from the perspective of Major League Baseball is not exactly a progressive, you know, on the whole progressive leaning business. Not that I I would actually counter that neither is film, but I think a lot of people who will be upset about this kind of move or at least questioning it from emancipation will suggest, oh, you know, liberal Hollywood. But the thing is, Major League Baseball pulled out first and then subsequently claimed, you know, there were claims of cancel culture happening there. I think what's interesting about it is that this is something where the free market is at work. Businesses are deciding they don't want to help the economy in Georgia. That's their right to decide. The economy, the people I know who live and work in Georgia are really upset about this. Whether Whatever their politics are, they're upset that major opportunities, I mean, things like an all-star game or a major movie, these are big boosts to a local economy, and Atlanta, like you said, has been on fire in terms of film, but just in general. It was like one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. A lot of people moving there, young people of all kinds. It's part of why. uh, Also going back to politics, things have changed there in terms of the demographics. But all that aside, you can't ignore the impact that these kinds of decisions have on the potential for a city to thrive from an economic standpoint. And Like it or not, this is how it works. So when you hear people complain or bemoan liberal Hollywood or political decisions, like keep in mind that this is their right as a major business, as a force. This is where they decide to spend their money and operate and they get to make that choice, whatever they want to do with it they get to do. <laughs> so I think it's like there's a lot to read into this. Um I personally think it's great because I think these election laws are are absurd and backwards and ancient and there's a lot of goodness to all of these different businesses saying like nah, we're not we're not going to help. We're not going to help out until you you turn it around. So it's great. I love it.
0: I mean, for me, there's so much there, too, in that, like, this isn't Hollywood. This is Apple, actually. Apple is producing. That's
1: a really good point. Yes. So it's
0: it's still California. It's still the coast, but it's northern California, not southern California. It's going to cost them 15 extra million dollars to move it to Louisiana, but they're going to do it anyway. And for me, this all goes back to the Martin Luther King. I have a dream speech in the I have a dream speech. Part of the dream is that someday, like obviously the part that gets quoted all the time is like, you know, kids playing together regardless of the color of their skin. But part of the dream is also that someday he'll be judged on the content of the his character, not the color of his skin. And so when people talk about like, well, this is discrimination or this is cancel culture or whatever, it's like Apple isn't saying I don't want to shoot in Georgia because you have too many peach trees, which is something Apple can't do it. Georgia can't do anything about or like well, Apple is not saying I don't want to shoot in Georgia because you're red earth isn't is we don't like red earth we want brown earth right because doesn't uh georgia notoriously a very red colored earth it's not immutable things about georgia that georgia cannot change or control apple is saying we are judging your character which is in it with these election laws atrocious like it's voter suppression it is anti-democratic and based on our judgment of our, your character we are making a different financial decision which is
1: a tough one. Yeah. And like yeah. you said, like a harder one. And I love that it's, that they're actually making the harder decision in terms of cost. And I would add, here's the other thing. It's not like everybody living in Georgia is okay with these election laws. Right. I know a lot of people who are upset about it. Cause it's like, wow, we're all being punished because of, of the people who, well, yeah. And that's why you have to mobilize and vote and get rid of the people who are making these decisions that are going to sabotage your economy. Because look at a certain point, if M- if Major League Baseball and Apple and you know however many major industries are all leaning in the same direction, and then you have to start to say like okay like it's either like get out of get on the train or get off the tracks you know like there's get on the train or get off the tracks because there's like things are changing or moving and if you want to keep resisting it and complaining about the companies having an ideology and that's why it's like, well, whether they have an ideology or not, it's happening across the board. So your town, your city, your state, like if if you insist on suppressing voters, uh, yeah, it might be hard to get people to spend money there. So if you're one of the people living in Atlanta or Georgia and you hate this or anywhere in the world, and yet you, and you feel like, well, I'm my fate is being dictated by people I don't necessarily agree with. Well, then you have to look at the ways you can do something about it. There are things you can do about it, and I encourage people to find seek those out, flip those states, or or re or look for the candidates who will help you bring the businesses back. Because that's the other irony, isn't it? Like there's always this thing about bringing businesses back to states or to communities that need them. Who needs jobs or jobs being outsourced? Like, well some of these decisions are going to actually push jobs away. And
0: honestly, it it's important. These repercussions happen because in the end, moderate, like, you know, the people who just truly want to suppress votes are going to suppress votes, but they need, they're always going to need moderate Congress people to vote with them. Right. There's going to be the extreme nut jobs and then there's going to be moderates. And, We want moderates in a position where they're like, if I vote for this, am I going to lose jobs in my district? Are businesses going to leave my district by voting for this? And so, like, you have to have consequences for them to see that repercussion. And, like, it's astounding to me that the people who passed these laws did not see the potential for this to happen because it's been happening lately. But, like, yeah, this is one of the ways in which change happens.
1: It's funny. We spent, I think, I think in 2019 and and maybe the very... We spent a lot of time on this podcast. We didn't ever get political, really. But in the last year, it's been almost impossible not to because of the way that the world has changed, but also the way some of these topics have leaked and become a part of what's happening every day at the top of the headlines in the filmmaking community, in in the entertainment industry. And so a decision like this, this is a huge move this is a major player in Apple making a very expensive decision to do something that is motivated by politics and election law. So it's impossible for us not to talk about it. And I also want to point out, you know, Charles, you and I are very like-minded. I mean, I know there are different opinions out there about this. Um, I'd be curious to hear them if listeners have them and want to write in and want us to address it. Like if you see this under, in, a, in a different way. And you want to put together a coherent and respectful argument. I'm I'm definitely getting like, it's not like I want to drown out any other voice um, because I want to be able to respond to it here. And I think you do too. And I think that it's important that as these topics become more and more a part of things, like we say, we think this is great. Um, If you think it's not great and we're not bringing that up, I feel like I've given voice to it by saying like it is impacting people in Georgia and Atlanta who are not making this decision, obviously. They're just victims of it. But but I'm also like we are trying to talk about, well, what can they do about it? But the entertainment industry, the democratization of it means it's spreading to different kinds of cities, different communities. It's easier to make movies. It's easier to go to these, get these tax rebates and stuff. And one of the things that's going to impact this the most is if those local governments do things that alienate these businesses
0: yeah so i have two things i want to disagree with about what you just said one is you said we didn't talk about politics in 2019 and excuse me we spent three weeks talking about how bad the finale of game of thrones was and that was a political discussion (laughs) and um
1: that used to be what we talked
0: about yeah remember that remember when that was uh or the episode that was too dark on everybody's tv screen except for mine And the other thing I just want to point out, and I like of everything I've ever said on No Film School's podcast, which I've wondered whether or not I would hear about later. This is one where I actually think it's possible. I will hear about it in the official photos that like went out with this press release and like they were used by a whole bunch of outlets. Antoine Fuqua's photo is way better color corrected than Will Smith's. So like Will Smith's publicity team better get on that because like there's an official like approved portrait of Will Smith out there that like. He looks almost like a smurf. He's so blue. And uh, come on, publicity maybe it's team. The
1: genie, could it be the genie stuff?
0: Oh, maybe it's some leftover genie makeup. It's possible. All right, moving on to another political subject. Ban Junho, <laughs> while speaking at Ch- Chapman University, uh, gave his his thoughts on anti Asian racism. I mean, his first thought was, "I live in Korea, so I don't really deal with it the same way you would in America." Which is, you know, like in a Asian country, hopefully, hopefully you're not going to have anti-Asian racism in uh, that country. We, we would hope. I mean, you know, there's some complicated dynamics in certain countries, but um, he did talk about the political aspects of Parasite in a way that I thought was really interesting for filmmakers to remember, which is that he really focused on trying to pay as much attention to the world around you as possible to see what's really going on. Because, Movies don't happen quickly. It's not like, you know, we don't have the George Floyd movie yet. I guarantee you there will be seven George Floyd movies this year. But like, you know, it's not like YouTube and TV news where something happens and within a week, there's a billion things like a movie takes a year or two at least to like, get written and get germinated and to to become this big thing. And so if you want to do work that strikes a chord, and Parasite really did. It really connected with people's sense of both natural disaster and economic calamity. And it, and I mean, you know, I think we all remember when Parasite came out, how of the moment it felt, what a chord it struck. I mean, I mean, it won the Oscar for a reason, like it really connected with people. And, you know, he'd probably written it at least two, if not three years earlier. So one of the things we have to do as filmmakers is we have to try and pay deep attention to the world around us and look for the deep currents that are on their way up. And sometimes you'll be wrong, but sometimes you'll be right. And that, I thought, was a really interesting insight, especially as like we're all sort of coming out of 2020 and and thinking about what we're writing next and and thinking about like what we're launching next. I thought that was a really nice set of insights from Bong.
1: I think that he made some interesting points about how you can... Address these things by being insightful, I think is the word he said. Use your insight to portray the issues that are currently boiling underneath the surface of society that can explode later on. He 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 said, you tried to make a movie with Parasite about the haves and have-nots and began with the question of what does it mean to be poor or rich in our current times? And I think that he, and he references Spike Lee and do the right thing when it comes to talking about issues of race. I think what he's trying to say is like, you can address something like The Asian hate that's going on in the world and in this country right now through asking interesting questions and telling a story or or spinning a narrative that probes deeper into our humanity and into these issues without being 100% on the nose or being so issue focused. If you prioritize humanity and storytelling, then you're maybe more likely to strike the chord. I think that's what he's trying to, what he's saying. I think he said it more eloquently than I do. But this flurry of Asian hate that's going on in our country is reprehensible and there's hate crimes and it's just disgusting, another awful chapter. And I think that there are ways that filmmakers have an ability to address these things on a deeper level than just saying X and Y is bad z and d is good (laughs) like i think that there are ways to touch one another and provide insight and depth and and peel back the layers on what's going on and why that storyteller has that through metaphor and that's that's what he's good at that's what great storytellers and filmmakers are great at that's the power of of narrative in any form and i think it's like Use your use the if if you if this is the tool you have, use the tool you have. You know, some people we've talked about this before in the podcast, too. Like when there when BLM protests were happening around the country, we were talking about, well, what can the filmmaker do? What what is the what is the role you have if you want to have a role? I remember you remember that there was a movie Oliver Stone made. I feel like Oliver Stone's one of those guys who's always like a little too quick to make the exact thing. Like he made a movie W. Like, I think Bush might not have even been out of office or he was like out of office so quickly. And like last year, do you remember there was a TV movie event that was like already about Trump? I think Brendan Gleeson played him. I didn't see it. Um, I, I feel like when you do that, it's like, whoa, the paint hasn't even dried. Like, we don't even really know where the threads all lead. It's very hard to do that. Great example of a movie that came pretty fast after the event was Watergate and All the President's Men. But even then, it was a number of years where they could tell the story with hindsight. If you're going to tell it as it happens, I hope that the powers that be can wait until there's enough, that the dust has settled enough that you can be truly reflective rather than trying to catch the moment. Like, like it's it, it, You can't be in real time, you know?
0: Well, it goes back again to these debates that, you know, it, there used to be this clear schism between cinema and television, right? And like television was designed to be more, immediate, or not designed to be, but could be more immediate, right? Like you could have something happening in the news and two weeks later, you know, in the fifties, you could do like a live, you know, a, a live taping of a play about that subject. Like there was an immediacy to it, whereas television uh, cinema, because of the way it was created took more time and was more deliberate. And so as we talk about all these di- distinctions between what is cinematic and what is like television, you know, it's a harder distinction to draw because, you know, in terms of cinematic imagery, Game of Thrones finale was full of sim- cinematic imagery. Mad Men looked like as good or better than several movies that came out around the same time. So like one of the distinctions I think that's really interesting to preserve And to think about is time. I mean, one thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is that, and this isn't true of Game of Thrones or maybe Mad Men, but it is true of a lot of television, is like one of the main distinctions between the two formats is the amount of time you get to spend on a project. So like in television, it is still quite common for like a one hour episode of a good TV show, like quality stuff, like stuff that people like gets to edit for eight or nine days. Like that is not an uncommon period of editing on a major one hour TV show in, in North America, as opposed to a movie, which might cut for six or nine months, or in some cases, two years. And so like the big distinction that I think we still get to make between TV and movies is time. Not just that they are mediums about time, but time that is devoted to the creation process and the perspective that comes with it. I mean, that movie that uh, Oliver Stone made about W came out during the election of Obama versus McCain, and he considered it like part of his campaign contribution to Obama to make this movie that really showed us everything that was terrible about George W. Bush. First off, this is a movie that everybody immediately forgot, right? And I think the <laughs> goal the goal of a movie should be something that lasts, right? Like if we're going to spend longer making it, we also want it to be one of those movies. There are movies from 2008 that we all still watch all the time. There's movies from 2008 that are still part of the canon. W is not one of them. It felt like an SNL <laughs> skit. It felt like a 90-minute SNL skit.
1: Josh Brolin as W was just weird cat. Like I I have, a, I, I'm, I'm just tangent real quick because I, I agree with all your points. It's really hard to cast a star that people recognize as a public figure people recognize, like concurrent with that public figure's like major media moments. Like that's just, you're asking for a mental disconnect. But anyway, go ahead. Note for yeah. Oliver Stone.
0: I mean, I felt like Elizabeth Banks was good in it. I felt like... Um you know, I felt like all of the actors were doing their best. When I say it felt like an SNL skit, I did. I don't mean the performances. I actually felt like Josh Brolin brought a lot of humanity to George W. I felt like he was like so charismatic and charming. It was unrealistic. Yes, yeah, exactly. Brolin, uh, who's great. Yeah. But I, I feel like the issue was just like the writing because it was dealing with these things that were happening now. And it was like it just felt more like a series of sketches than it did like a movie. It is complicated to to try and comment on the now. And to figure out how we can do movies about the present moment and what that means. And so I think the more interesting thing is, you know, I mean, we're about to start watching. It's about to start getting weird if your media doesn't engage with COVID. Like, it's about to, you know, like, like you could get away for the last six months to a year of like your movies coming out during COVID, but it's set pre-COVID, like everybody enjoyed Palm Springs, even though it came out during COVID because we were giving a pass (laughs) to things that existed pre-COVID. But like, if you are writing something right now, you are writing something that will be shot in the earliest this summer or fall, and so will exist in a post-pandemic world. So everything you are writing right now is sci-fi, where you are trying to predict What this fall or next summer when your movie comes out is going to feel like in a post pandemic space, because at a certain point this past, we're all operating under right now. Whereas if something is coming out right now, we know it was really set in 2019 will expire and like we will have to have work that. And so like Bong's comments are really like one of the challenges of being a filmmaker. I mean, you got to learn staging and lighting and and but like one of them is engaging deeply enough with the world to see the deeper currents and it'll be really interesting in the summer of 22 to watch a whole host of movies set in some way in a world after COVID. And some of them are going to get the flavor of that world really right. And some of them are going to get the flavor of that world wildly wrong. And it's one of the challenges of being a filmmaker. And it's probably harder now than it, it has been in, in a very long time because this, all of these things happening in the world right now have to affect the work we create, but we're not getting the time we usually want to deal with it.
1: It's awkward to watch anything right now and not have those moments where you think about how close people are or whether or not they're breaking rules about... Uh, for some of us, I think some people probably never... I think that there's such a split in society on how people reacted to everything that there may be people. Certainly there are people out there watching things, not thinking about it because they never stopped doing what they were doing. but for for those of us who isolated or who have obeyed you know these restrictions to try and prevent further spread, I think the idea of people close talking in rooms inside and like crammed up in spaces is just gonna be strange, like a packed elevator or like anything you see. And I don't know if anyone. It depends on how much live TV you ever watch or if you ever watch sports, but there's, there's a lot of commercials now that have incorporated. It happened in like the last eight months, really. But a lot of commercials address the challenges uh, we've all faced. And there are commercials that include masks and include social distancing and strange things like that um, that have become part of the norm. I think as, as we shift into a pre post vaccination. You're right. It's just going to be weird. There's going to be this weird thing of creating stuff that reflects what happened, what phase of it, it happened during and how appropriate. I mean, I don't even like, I I kind of like, it hurts my brain to think about things like how many people are writing like rom-com scripts around this city right now, my city or your city or any city, and considering how to incorporate whether or not they have to be socially distanced on dates and whether or not that should be a plot point or whether or not they should ignore it (laughs) entirely. Like, there's so much there.
0: The number of people right now who are like, oh my God, guys, there's going to be a hunger for content. Nobody's shooting anything. We should go out and we'll do our indie feature this summer and it'll be about dating during the pandemic. I mean, I guarantee you, if you're a screener at (laughs) Sundance, you are going to watch 100 low-budget features about dating during a pandemic. One of them might be good enough to get into Sundance. My big guess is, will it have a pandemic pun in the title? Like, pan-divorce? Like, uh, COVID-dating? COVID-dating is definitely going to be the title of, like, four
1: of them. You should, uh, that's like a web series or something. I, I feel, I'm thinking about the Sundance panelists and judges I've met over the years, and I'm worrying about them. Like I'm picturing them and I'm worrying about them.
0: Because I've talked, whenever I interview them. And I do <laughs> want to say, I also think there's going to be an amazing movie made about dating and divorce during the pandemic. Like just because I'm making a joke about how much will be made in this arena. And like I think that's a fun joke to make, especially COVID dating. I also think that like <laughs> just because a subject is well covered, like how many monster movies were there before Jaws? And then Jaws came in and was like. Someone could have the
1: amazing version of it for sure. There's the Harry Met Sally of it out there. It exists. It's a real thing. But the sad thing is there's going to be – a Yeah, it's just funny because I think – I remember one long time Sundance uh, judge – I I forget the correct term, but screener, just like Sundance person. He told me – He said there's usually every year there is these random themes that are not traced to anything where it's like – Why this year did 80% of the movies have these certain things in common that you, like he was, he's like this weird, doing that gives you this weird cultural insight that I I don't know if anybody else gets just by volume. But I do think that this is like going to be the year of everything there. You'll know exactly why so many things have so much in common and it's going to be really rough and I feel for them.
0: Yeah, but I I also can't wait to see the really good pandemic divorce movie. Like I'm not it's not half of my married friends got a divorce, but like a significant number of my married friends got a divorce this year. And like, you know, pandemic it happened and like at some point someone is going to make an amazing movie about what that is like where one partner goes on a dating spree and the other person is like, "No, I'm actually going to and Like, I'm not going to see anyone for six months. Like, it's going to be fascinating when someone cracks that. Now, in order to get to that good one, there's going to be 50 messy ones. So, good luck, screeners.
1: The fallout of the pandemic on people's relationships is something that, like I said before, we are living in real time. But we might want to let the dust settle and in a few years reflect on what it really meant. Because I think the stories will be better. Than The ones that are coming out in the heat of the moment. That's my personal take. I think that even for the screen, everybody in a few years will be able to reflect on it all and have insight and there will be humanity to it that we to go back to a bong was saying that we may not have yet because we we are just in it still. And so we are all experiencing how all these couples we know are getting divorced and all these people's lives are being so fundamentally changed that in five years, it might be interesting to revisit.
0: Well, it's also not, you know, I'm going to go back to 9-11 because it's the, I was in DC when it happened. And so it like really sort of impacts me in a lot of similar ways to COVID in a way that other people might not relate to, but it certainly does for me. And like, you know, I remember about a year later, there was like a a film festival of all these short films about 9-11. And I was like, already? And like, none of those, have like entered the canon or lasted. And it was really a full five years later in 2006 when United 93 and Oliver Stone's World Trade Center (laughs) um, to continue the Oliver Stone. And I, I, you know, Oliver Stone seems like he has a sense of humor about himself. I hope he does. He also makes a lot of movies I really love, but like World Trade Center was definitely too soon. United 93 wasn't (laughs) somehow Paul Greengrass made a movie the same year that felt appropriate. Like United 93 really worked in a way that World Trade Center didn't necessarily work. Um, I think
1: he picked a corner of a corner of the experience and the aspect he didn't go right at the bullseye, which And which was think, just too much. <laughs> like,
0: which I think is a good takeaway from this, which is yes. picking a corner is maybe like the first, oh my God, you know that at some, it might not come out this year. I mean, we've already seen it. Netflix had like worst year ever or whatever, but like, you know, there's going to be a movie called 2020 or a novel called 2020 or whatever that tries to tackle everything. And it's like actually picking a little corner niche, a little angle is probably the smarter move to try and tackle all of the things that are happening at once. But even those two examples are five years later. Like the really great pan-divorce movie is probably going to come out in 2026, not 2021. Although
1: maybe. Yeah, like a lot of great, uh, I'm just, just an example, a lot of great Civil War art Does not come from that period. It comes from later.
0: (laughs) Like, yeah, the movies about the Civil War made during the Civil War are are just really still photos. Like you can stare at them for a long time. But they don't really move. (laughs) Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise.
1: What a wonderful day!
0: It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, moving on to tech news. Calm and non-political Tech news. So tech news this week, and the reason why the episode is if if you guys normally like to listen right at midnight, you might have noticed this one came out a few hours later, and that's because it's under embargo. And that's because we have embargoed tech news this week. So that's why the episode showed up at 9 a.m. instead of midnight, if you're like an obsessive midnight listener. And the reason for that is we have embargoed news from DJI. They are releasing a new drone called the Mavic Air 2S. And it is crazy good. It is so good. I don't know why they didn't just call it the 3, although I have a theory about that I'll get to at the end. So the Mavic Air 2S is a follow-up, obviously, to the Mavic Air 2. But as opposed to the Mavic Air 2, it's moved up to having a full one-inch sensor size. Now, if you hear us talk about sensors all the time and you don't always remember sensor sizes, these are still not as big as, like, Super 35 or full-frame, like in your uh, DSLR mirrorless cameras. It's still not that big. If you want a full-frame in a drone you need to like rent a matrix or something and then fly your red Monstro or whatever and we did that actually last year we flew a sigma fp full frame sensor with some zine pl mount primes rented a matrix, or worked with a company that owned a matrix and they flew it so you can totally do that you can do full frame on a zoom but like for this like all in one thing which is the dream like You're an owner operator. You're a DP. You're a director. You want to have a drone with you all the time. You want to have one that's really easy to bring. You want one of these like smaller folding drones like the Mavic line where you can fold it up and keep it in your ditty bag and it's always around. And um, the Mavic Pro line previously offered the option of a one inch sensor. And now you can get a one inch sensor in the Mavic air with the air 2s and the bigger the sensor the same thing is true as with the other cameras the bigger the sensor the better low light sensitivity the finer the resolution and with this new bigger one inch sensor which is crazy that they have it in an air the bigger one inch sensor gives you 5.4k video at 24 frames per second you can go up to 4k 60 frames per second you can get 120 frames per second done at 1080 so it's like 5.4K at 24 frames per second is crazy good resolution for a drone that costs like around a thousand bucks that weighs so little that you can just bring it with you everywhere, leave it in your kit bag. We've actually gotten a couple days of testing with it. I got to fly it in uh, New York uh, following all the permits and laws and in the zones we are allowed to fly it. And I got to fly it a little bit in Baltimore. And like the imagery is really stunning. It's also the first so they have, you know, like the the two lineups are the around $1,000 Air line, and then slightly heavier and slightly more expensive is the Pro line, around 1500 bucks or so, where there's one with a zoom or one that doesn't have a zoom, but has the larger sensor, the one-inch sensor like this. And um, they have always had log. Now the Air 2S has log. So like they're putting a whole lot of features that you used to have to go up to the Pro line to get in this like camera around $1,000. Now, there's still some arguments for the pro line and the pro line is still at version two. And that's why I think they kept this at version two is I think the first time they use three, it'll be like the three pro will come out. You know, the things you might still go up to the pro line for are side impact sensors. Like this one has sensors in front and back. So if you're going to like fly into a building or back into a building, it'll warn you and stop you. Um, The pro will. How how often
1: does, how often does the side actually a lot when you do a
0: circle shot, so I've actually flown a drone sideways into something. So side okay. impact. <laughs> I was gonna say, and-
1: like, how often do accidents happen with drones, and how expensive are they? And like, how much would that be, like, something where if you're really a drone user, you'd be like, yeah, I gotta get the side, because like to me, it just sounds like that's not the most significant drop off. No, terms that's of actually like- a
0: big drop off for me. So okay, I've been flying drones since 2015, although I've flown them a lot more lately, and I'm uh, certified by the FAA now, which is just a test. They don't do a flying test or whatever, but you know, I like doing the things to do it right. But like earlier in my drone flying experience, I, I, I was doing a circling around a building and I lost line of sight on the drone. And while I was trying to get it back, uh, the drone circled too close into the building and circled right into the building and fell to the ground. This does happen. It is a thing. It happens often enough with drones, that they offer a like, you know, every company offers some sort of warranty. If you pay for the warranty with uh, DJI, you get two full drone replacements with the warranty. So the warranty's not cheap because they're committing to give you two extra drones. And I believe you have to have the original damaged drone. You can't just be like, oops, I lost it in a river. You have to like be able to send in the damaged one that they will then replace. So it's not like, if you're doing a lot of like flying over the ocean, it's, it's not going to help you. But if you crash into stuff a lot, you do crash into things with a drone. Like, um, in order to fly properly, you ideally want a lot of practice in a safe environment and you want someone working as a visual spotter. If you can, you don't want to be out alone. So you can have someone else keeping eyes on the drone. But you know, the number one thing that happens is you're staring down at your, your image. Cause you can see the image of what you're shooting on your remote controller with your phone. You're staring down at that and side to side and back are, are probably most of the impacts. Cause you, you know, when you're flying at something, the camera's pointing forward, you see what you're flying at. You probably rarely fly into stuff. I'm sure it happens. It's less often. It's when you're backing up, you're getting some sort of cool pull away shot that you back into a light post, you back into a tree, you back into another building or side to side, if you're doing like a circling shot. So, you know, I, I flew with this for a couple of days. I didn't crash it into anything. Um, like it's not, that you're guaranteed to crash every time you fly. But those side impact sensors are actually kind of like a nice little extra bonus thing you get out of the Pro. And then you get a little bit of a better color science out of the Pro lineup. But you do get D-Log and a one-inch sensor out of the Mavic Air 2S. And you get a 31-minute flight time. And you know the Air, because it's smaller than the Pro, does claim that it's gonna be a little bit more nimble in the Air. Um in fact it offers a cinema flight mode. It's like a big switch on the thing where you can make it like slower and smoothier silkier, or you can go in normal mode where it's like a little more aggressive and you can do some like more fun stuff. So it was it's been a really impressive drone to test. If you're like, I want drone to be a major part of my shooting, you probably want to still think about the pro. If you're like, oh, I'm a working DP, I want to drone around so that every once in a while I can add one to a shoot or when I'm doing a location scout, I want to be able to get an overhead shot or overhead view or something. I got to say the Air 2S was really impressive and the image quality uh, has been really stunning. So I think it's uh it's kind of crazy good. You know, when a company makes a product that's like a surprisingly strong contender for their more expensive product, like it's that it's like, wow, you really made this very good guys. Like the but Like like you mean pay. like
1: they they undercut themselves a little bit or they made it harder to make a case to spend more on their other product? Yeah, a little bit. Like it's yeah? good
0: enough where I'm like, this is really cutting in on the pros territory. Now, the way companies often do this, and I have no information. Do you think
1: that's intentional because maybe they, they are like, you know what, the market for the pro is not is so specialized that we really want to expand the market for the non pro. But well, I the think the pro is going to continue for like a small percent of the pot. I mean, these guys, these guys and girls must have calculations to this extent, right? Well, the
0: pro has been around for three years. There's probably going to be a new version of the pro with even cooler features soon. So I think a little bit they're willing to cannibalize a market that's probably like if you were going to buy a pro, you've had three years to do it. So I think there's a little bit of that. I also think the the word that keeps coming up for me is like content creator, like the place where this is like D log is definitely something that, like, you're making a lot of YouTube videos you want because it gives you more color grading flexibility and posts. So, this isn't purely consumer because consumers don't care about log. Consumers want a video that looks great right out of the unit. Whereas, log, you have to color correct, but you get more flexibility in color correcting. But I think where this is really targeted is like the mass market of people who are all out there because it has like all these cool follow modes. So, if you're like, a mountain biking YouTuber that's putting up all of your content on YouTube. Like you can fly this. You can then like touch your phone screen to highlight yourself and say, follow me. And it's supposed to follow you around with active track to follow you around to get some cool stuff. And so like, it's really that like content creator space where it's not like necessarily targeted at like, narrative storytelling establishing shots that you might be able to get a little bit better imagery out of the pro, but the imagery is going to be so good. And the price point is going to be so great that I think it's really targeting that like mass market of content creators who are doing color grading, but like, they're making a lot more stuff in that YouTube space. So I think that's where they're thinking it's going to land. Um, but honestly it's so good that I think even some people thinking about narrative storytelling, might You should definitely give it a look because I was very impressed. And I think if you're doing like a lot of reality shooting where you want to get a good establisher or a lot of like, you know, uh, food shows or anything like that, where you want to get like a nice overhead of the restaurant, I think like the imagery is pretty strong.
1: Really cool. Uh, cool to know that the, that those kinds of drone drone capabilities are expanding into the less pro area too.
0: Yeah. And I also have to say like, they're just getting, you know, they're just getting so easy to fly. Like you should still practice. You still need training if you want. If you're if you want to fly it professionally, do parts one hundred seven. But like DJI is working very hard to make it an approachable thing to fly drones and get good shots in a way that is really impressive.
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, as long as we're talking about drones and easy to fly and stuff, and like this is going to be, I'm going to try to avoid the part of this. It's old man rants at cloud thing, but I find drone shots distracting. They pull me out because I think I'm not as used, like they're, they've they been a part of things for a while now, but I, I, I saw a Western, a big budget Western recently. There aren't that many of them. And there was a number of drones in it. And every time there's a drone shot, I was like, whoa, what? Like, it's <laughs> just like, that's not, that's not part of the visual language. Now, it's cool to expand and change visual language all the time, and I'm all for it. I'm just saying from a personal subjective standpoint, not saying good or bad, just saying it totally distracted me. Um, I, I wonder if that's just my age and my experience and that for younger people, it'll be like they're, they're going to expect to see drone shots and everything, and they'll be weirded out when there aren't drone shots. But I have a weird thing with drone shots. They, they stick out to me
0: well i also think that some of that has to do with the language of how the drone is being used like we're creating hmm. these habits with how we use drone and aerial shots that are a product of the technology in them that let us yeah. do certain moves that you know i mean there are westerns have had i mean there's a there's at least one higher helicopter shot i can think of in open range from 20 years ago which is sure, like yeah. a helicopter shot but Open Range if you haven't watched Open Range go watch Open Range it's so solid and like yeah. the helicopter shot totally works in my mind and like even Night of the Hunter which isn't a western although it has some western flavor and like yeah. was set in the 30s even though it was shot in the, like shot in the 50s as a 30s period film there's a helicopter shot in Night of the Hunter um and it works in my mind I mean everything about Night of the Hunter works uh, that movie. Just
1: no, rules. I mean, you're making a good point, which is like, anyone could say, well, the very first Western, they didn't, all they had was sticks. <laughs> like, you know, they didn't move a camera. And then someone lowered, and then uh, John Ford dug a hole and put it below eye level. And was like, whoa, oh my God. That's well, no, new my visual argument is Actually,
0: that my, my suspicion is the reason those drone shots stood out to you, is I'm going to guess, I haven't seen the movie you're talking about, but I'm, I want to take a look. My guess is that they were probably doing things aesthetically that You know, like the drone, the helicopter shot in open range, you're just in the sky drifting slowly at this town on a hill and it's beautiful and the weather's right and it's not obtrusive. Whereas because of what drones let us do now, we're in these habits of like, I'm going to circle the building and slowly drift in on the building and tilt down and rotate. Mm. And like, you know, and it feels really cool and action movie like and you're seeing it like. A reality TV food show will have like this crazy, beautiful establishing drone shot of the thing. And so my guess is that those Western shots, the thing that stuck out to you about those drone shots was not the cameras flying. My guess is that it was probably involving a lot of moving camera aesthetics of like tilting and rotating and panning and pushing in and all this stuff that probably felt like a more contemporary aesthetic is my guess.
1: I'm 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 trying to remember. I don't I don't have the recall on what specifically was happening. I think they kept it pretty clean in terms of trying not to get it. And you were still it, like
0: but... no drones in my western.
1: Yeah, I think I was just so it it was not what I was expecting. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, I think they I don't think they went over the top really. I just think I saw it and it was it was a combination I'm thinking of it being a drone and it being the digital format that just felt like not quite in step with everything else. But I do feel strongly that people should always, always, always push any genre to incorporate, you know, new visual language. And that's how you end up getting stuff that's so cool that we remember forever because somebody decided to try putting a camera in a place in first shot. But I also subscribe to the, as like a film theorist and a film theory fanatic, you know, Billy Wilder was talking about the shots he hates are the ones that you're aware of and the best yeah. shots like he has he has a crazy shot in like Ace in the Hole. I think he has a couple shots in his entire career that like are really like shot shots and he hated them and always talked about how he didn't like people even noticing that he was doing that. So I always think being invisible within the story is always number 1 and and the great DPs always say that but you know pushing it is cool too.
0: Cool. All right. And moving on to our Ask No Film School, Samuel Sloan asks, I've made the move to Los Angeles. How do I apply for paid jobs as a crew member on narrative projects? Willing to start at the bottom and work up, but it seems impossible to find even intro jobs. So this is a great question. It is a good opportunity to talk about one of the hardest things about the film industry which is even breaking in at the bottom can be very complicated. So for instance, you think to yourself, I'm willing to start as a PA. So surely I can end up with PA opportunities on big movies just as easily as I can wind up with PA opportunities on little movies. And the unfortunate reality of the situation is even the entry-level jobs on major productions are harder to come by. And the reason why It's because they depend upon word of mouth networks, right? Even a PA, which is the lowest job on set. The production assistant is still a make or break job on a big studio movie on a big studio movie. If you have a PA who has no idea what they're doing and doesn't know good walkie protocol and doesn't know not to like hit on the leading actor, like doesn't know (laughs) any of those things. Like, it's still not <laughs> going to take good numbers the off morning. the so, call sheet. <laughs> oh yeah. So you, you, those big productions are still going to hire experienced PAs who PA'd and a lot of other productions have good word of mouth. You know, they're hiring a key set PA and then the key set PA is hiring all the PAs beneath them and they're hiring from people that they know and are recommended. So like it does happen that you move to LA and within a month you're, you're PA on a big studio movie. But usually that happens because you have some sort of family or other social network connection of a person who can bring you into that world. So, you know, your cousin has already been peeing on big studio movies for five years or something. Can I tell Tends you? Can I, can I jump in real
1: quick on something on that? Yeah, jump in. Continue. So what's crazy is two two stories. My first PA gig I got because my uncle was a producer, one of many and not the biggest one. On a very small independent movie. And all I could get, like my connection to a producer on this movie, was was PA. (laughs) So, So that's how I got a PA job. Then I had a very good friend and a roommate when I was just out of college who PA'd on a number of big movies, Christopher Nolan movies and stuff. And he only got those PA jobs because his father happened to be friends with an executive at Warner at the time. I think it was Warner. Who was a high up executive, and all they could squeeze out out of that connection, which is an amazing connection by the way, was PA. And these were these were like creme de la creme PA jobs. Like he was on a bunch of the biggest movies those years. And I occasionally, because I knew him, would get to do a day as a PA, which I think like one thing on the Prestige, I think I carried some costumes around from one set to another one day for like you know PA wages at the time, which was you know always nothing, but. So my point is just to that is that like, I had some very good connections and new people who were very connected and still that's how you get the bottom rung PA jobs. We're not talking about like crewing on a show, like, like, you know, learning how to be a grip or anything that would translate. We're talking about just, you know, office PA delivering Well, back then you hand deliver like a script or you would be a runner or you would, um, yeah, drag some costumes around.
0: Yeah. Those are the perfect anecdotes. Those are the perfect examples. Like I moved to LA and I knew no one, like I had no connections. I had one friend from college who had grown up in LA, but she didn't even live in LA anymore. So like I knew no one when I moved to Los Angeles. So I literally like was willing to do anything. And in my first year I ended up doing anything and I ended up working on a whole bunch of tiny little productions because it's the tiny little indie productions that will hire just anybody yeah. and accept that like part of it is going to be that they're showing you what to do. You know, that is unfortunately the way it ha- it starts. I do not think this is right. Like to yeah. be clear, I'm not arguing this is a good system. I think that, yeah. that, that we, we should dream <laughs> of a world with a better system. <laughs> I am describing a reality I disagree with. but I'm describing it as gently as possible.
1: That's a very good, yeah, continue.
0: So what you're going to have to do is apply to every single job on mandy.com, realitystaffing.com, Craigslist, the TV film gigs thing. And you mentioned that you've been applying to those and that it's felt a little bit like they're going into the ether. So as someone who then eventually like started a production company and was hiring things ourselves, like when I would put up a job post on mandy.com, Um, which is what we used 10 years ago. I don't know what people use now, but literally within an hour, I would have gotten a hundred applicants. So even if there was an amazing applicant the next day, I would never get to it because I would look through the first 50 or so applicants. There'd already be six people worth talking to. And then at that point, I would just stop reading any of the emails. So one of the tricks is literally like leaving either Mandy open or setting up an RSS feed or an automatic email. And like the second a job ad goes up, you have to apply. Like if you see a job ad from a week ago, there is literally no point in applying. I would get these like applications like six months.
1: Such good actionable advice. That should be an article at No Film School. You should write it.
0: Yeah. You just like use an RSS reader and leave it open all the time and apply immediately. And that's how you will at least start to get some interviews on these things. Once you start getting interviewed, if you are good, everyone is always looking for a good PA, which means someone who's like, really good at knowing when to ask questions because they want you to ask questions. Questions are good. But like, I remember I was shooting something once and the first AD really wanted to be a DP. And it was like in the middle of lighting and we were trying to get a shot and I had my light meter out. And the first AD was like, can you tell me about what you're doing with the light meter right now? And I was like, no, we're trying to get a, like you asked me that at lunch. Like like the first AD was clearly above their weight. Like they, you know, it was like a 35 anamorphic job. They had a budget, but they, for some reason, hired a first AD that- was greener. I don't know why. Um, probably because money. they put a lot of money into the yeah. 35 anamorphic, <laughs> you know, I like knowing when to ask questions, like picking your moment because asking questions is fine, but knowing when it's a high stress moment, like being a normal, reliable, sane person who does, uh, you know, with good energy, everything that you can do. And you go out for like a few free days, like never agree to do a free feature, like never give a month of yourself for free. But if there's like a free PA job where you can go out for a day or two and you're getting fed and you're going out and you're doing stuff, people will find you. And often it'll be other PAs will be like, You're good. I'm going to bring you on the next one. And you'll get your 150 or 200 a day or whatever. And you'll get the rotation and you'll start to work and people will find you. But you, unfortunately, and I, I disagree, I don't like this system. I don't believe in free labor. But as it's set up right now, your first couple gigs, you're going to go out for free and you're going to be an amazing PA for 14 hours working for free on a low budget horror movie about a COVID divorce where one person after the divorce turns out to be a zombie.
1: I have to say that one of the things that makes this makes me happy about this podcast that we do it is the answers like this kinds of question, but also the answer you're giving because there's really useful stuff I wouldn't have thought to suggest or think about like being the first because I've done I've applied to countless things in my life and I've reviewed countless applications. I can't keep track of either. There's literally no way. And yeah, there is such resume submission fatigue in the sense that people will look at the first, however many and have enough to make a decision and they'll never look back. And if you can be one of the first and you can be all locked and loaded, like good stuff, ready to go, you have a much better chance. Also, I, I love the point that this is the way it is. This is not the way I want it to be because I hate... There's so much wrong with the fact that you, be, you, you really need to be able to afford to work for under a living wage or for free to get an opportunity in the industry. It's very hard to need the industry to give you a living wage and get those early opportunities. Also because... Every advice you'll get from anybody who's doing what they want to do in this industry is you got to go out and do it. That's what they always say. Go out and shoot it. Go out and shoot. Get a camera. Go shoot. Well, if you need to pay your bills and you need to pay your dues and you need to get out and shoot it, like when do you sleep and like just be a human being? And so all of this is not the way it should be, but there's nothing we can do about a lot of it right now and in the context of you coming out to L.A., I've known I've known, like just like I said, like I cited myself and other people who were from l a who had some pretty solid connections and all they and they could get those p a jobs that did not pay a living wage. I also know people who came out here with absolutely nothing, no connections, managed to find those p a jobs, managed to become producers on a show, on a set, managed to quickly become showrunners and get rich in Hollywood. Like it does happen. I know those people. It happens, yeah. The thing is, To take it back to like first steps, like I think the hardest thing to do is that you have to take the one simple step right in front of you, which might be today just saying yes to doing something without a budget that sucks and working very hard and just making really good impressions on people and just trusting that if you keep putting that step one on top of another, it won't necessarily lead you somewhere, but it could. It could lead you to the connections and the relationships that will then lead you to the jobs and the opportunities. And I know people who continue to get jobs that I started out with on little nothing shows that now get big jobs that I worked for free on in the middle of the night on like videos in back alleys or whatever that now have, you know, worked on Emmy nominated things. And like, so it, it builds. It really does. I've seen it for a lot of people. I know it also doesn't for a lot of people, so that's not helpful. But <laughs> I think what I'm trying to say is like you you do have to take one small step at a time, and they're they're not the steps. Like paing on on a on a Nolan movie is not often going to be the first step. Plus, if you're doing that, then you're not going to have time for anything else. They work you to the bone, or at least they used to. Like you might have more flexibility to get your own camera and shoot stuff you know, if you're doing the thing where you're pieing on the little indie project where they're going to probably not abuse your time because you're working for free. I mean, that is abusing your time, but you might do like eight hours and then you'll have time to shoot with some of the people you met on the weekend, et cetera, et cetera. Like you have to find yeah. a, a group and a community basically.
0: Well, which is hard to do in Los Angeles and then harder to do in a pandemic, but not impossible in either. The one thing I will say that that was a really great point George made, which is, You want to think about what your long-term ambition is. If your long-term ambition is crew, you were like, I'm down to PA and grip. If you're like, oh, I want to be a DP, just go work on sets and climb the ladder and it'll be fine. If you're like, I actually want to be a writer, it can also be really effective to just get another day job that like, okay, I'm going to have a nine to five and I'm going to write every morning from seven to nine can be just as effective. Because a lot of those entry-level jobs in film, like if you're PAing, you know, PAs are the first people on set. They're often the last to leave. Yeah, you won't have time to write
1: or and you won't yeah. have the creative juice either.
0: <laughs> yeah, you'll be so burnt. So
1: I, I would just add real quick make sure that you um that you make room for whatever you want to do. Like if you're on set and you're experiencing whatever the job is, make sure you keep in mind what you want to do and what your goals are.
0: Yes, indeed. All right, so we are done for another week of the No Film School podcast. You can find me on the internet at charleshain.com or on Instagram and Twitter at charleshain.
1: And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find everything we talked about and more at nofilmschool.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, leave us some messages and notes, and uh, let us know what you think of everything happening in the world, but also... Be sure to check out. We have our list of grants, awards, deadlines up on No Film School. Go to the site, look at it. It's written by Oakley Anderson Moore. It has everything you need to know about upcoming deadlines. So check it out. Thanks so much.